Okay, welcome to another edition of the Dreamers and Doers podcast, where we invite thought leaders from all over the world to have some interesting conversations. Today, I have with me Zias Karavala, who's the founder and principal analyst with ZK Research. It's the first time we're having an analyst on the program. And in his own words, Karavala brings a mix of tactical advice to his clients in the current business climate, as well as guides them on long-term strategy. Zias, welcome. Uh, thanks, Josh. You, you consider me a dreamer or a doer here? <laughs> uh, that's a question for you, my friend. Uh, I think probably more on the doer side. But, uh, you know, it's fun to dream about things, too. Hey, Zias, you know, we've known each other for a long time now. I think it's 15 years or so, back when the days when you were with Yankee. Then you decided to go out and become the founder of ZK Research. So what's this journey been like you and what do you do exactly at ZK Research? The role isn't a whole lot different than when I was at Yankee Group. The Yankee Group, of course, I, I ran the, I was the chief research officer for a while. And the fundamental premise of my research hasn't really changed, Shashi. When I was there, it was my belief that market share shifts when markets transition, right? So I always tried to look for those things that were happening in the industry that were going to create disruption. And for example, when you were in Cisco, if the company had decided to go build its own PBX, I don't think it would have had any success at all, but it caught that pivot to avoid, right? That really gave it a lot of growth. And so that's still the fundamental premise of my research. I focus, one of the things about being an independent though, is I'm able to cover different areas and I can ebb and change my flow, my research coverage as the market changes. And so I focus primarily on the emerging technologies within networking, security, and communications, where at traditional analyst firms, you're an analyst and then you have this research agenda that you live and die with, right? And so I felt that that model was um, really archaic, and so I wanted to do something a little different. Also, it was my belief that unless your firm name is Gartner or IDC, it was very difficult to get people to pay for research that sits behind a paywall. So I built a lot of relationships, as you know, with a lot of the media companies. You know, No Jitter, E-Week, Silicon Angle, CIO Network World, Forbes, you know, CSO, InfoWorld. There's a whole bunch of them that I write for. And uh, I use that as a way to get my research up. So I, I try to, to, you know, really this concept of the influencer, hybrid analysts has become very popular now. Uh, and I like to think I was one of the first ones to do that. And I, I really thought that the industry was changing and I had to change along with it. But I didn't think I could change along with it inside the confines of a traditional analyst. Yeah, you know, you're a prolific writer from what I've seen so far. And more importantly, you're a very likable guy. So the title of hybrid analyst really suits you. In some ways, I think you kind of invented that category. But if I were to trace it back to days when you're young, what guided you to the choice of career as an analyst? It's an interesting profession and not a traditional one. So how did uh, you become a hybrid analyst? People ask me this all the time. And uh, I never really had a desire to be an industry analyst. In fact, um, I think you know this, before I was an analyst, actually, I had a corporate IT background. And I really didn't think much of industry analysts. I thought most of them were a bunch of clowns and couldn't tell a data center for a, from a WAN link, right? And um, I, when the recruiter from Yankee Group called me, I first kind of scoffed at him. I said, are you kidding me? I said, most industry analysts don't know anything. Like, why would I be one of those? And he goes, well, if you really think that's the way it is. Why don't you become one and try and do it differently? Ah, that's that's a pretty good pitch, right? So I decided then to go take a look at it. As a, an IT person, I always really liked emerging technology. But one of the things is when you work for a financial services firm or you know companies like that that tend to be a little more risk adverse, 
you can't always throw the latest and greatest in. So as I've been an industry analyst, would, would allow me to look at the latest and greatest, talk to customers that deploy it, talk to channel partners that sell it, talk to the vendors without having to actually go deploy the technology. And so I thought that would be an interesting way to pivot my career because I had done the IT thing now at that time for about 20 years. And frankly, I, you know, for people that listen to this, if you're in corporate IT, I feel for you because I think there's probably no job less thankless than that. If things work fine, nobody ever says a word to you. And as soon as something doesn't work, right, then of course everything's your fault. And so that was ready for a change. Yeah, there are certainly a lot of heroes and martyrs in corporate IT that we have to have deep respect for. So it looks like you got baited by a smart Yankee recruiter who said, be the change you want to bring about in the world. Yeah. <laughs> so you kind of did that gig for some time. And then now you have ZK Research, which in some ways is almost a startup company, if I were to draw a parallel. So do you kind of think of yourself as an entrepreneur and you mentioned reinventing yourself. Uh, so how does that go about in terms of how you kind of reinvent and draw an analogy with startups, if you will? You know, I've been around actually 10 years now, so it's tough to call it a startup. But I, you're right. It, there is a, just like the vendor community is always being reinvented, I think analysts need to as well. And what I, I watch for, Shachi, is I, I always tell people if the value from the analyst comes down to how many widgets do you sell, right? then that market's mature enough that I probably shouldn't cover anymore because there's some great firms out there, ACG, Synergy, Deloro, that, that count those things, and they can do a far better job of it than I can. But if you want to talk about you know disruption and you know the impact of artificial intelligence and what's new in this area and how it's going to change jobs and uh, you know things like that, that's the stuff that I'm interested in. So from a more strategic standpoint, I like to really work at that point of inflection and at that point, the market size in a lot of ways doesn't really matter, right? Because it's small and, and whether it's a couple of million or a hundred million, we know it's going to be big. You think of something like SD-WAN now, right? It's not all that big, but we know the total TAM is huge. But there's a lot of vendor destruction going on now. And so, like I said, when the market gets to a point where it's so mature that the only value from the analyst is the numbers, then it's time for me to exit that market and move on to the next thing. You mentioned a couple of these big name firms, Gartner, IDC, you know, others. How do you approach research in a way that you build credibility against some of these big powerhouse firms? And, you know, across the fence, what is the approach they take as well? Can you kind of walk us through how the mind of an analyst functions? Yeah, I, I think, uh, and I have, I'm not saying anything negative about those firms. So I have great respect for the analysts there. A lot of them are my friends. But I do think that the problem with, and analysts, especially at the bigger firms, is you tend to get siloed into one particular coverage area. And, you know, so Gartner has a networking analyst. They have, well, they have a campus analyst. They have a WAN analyst, right? They've got separate security analysts. And the problem today, Shashi, is that all those things are coming together. And it's very difficult to be able to do research in one of those areas without stepping on somebody else's toes. And so it creates a lot of political infighting and nobody really knows who covers what. You know, I, I had a conversation with the folks at, um, you know, one of the publications about this even, where, you know, with all the, the rise of the convergence of network and security, a company like yours, when there's an announcement made, does the security person cover it or does the networking person cover it, right? And so that's the problem that, that I think industry analyst firms have, the bigger ones, is that the analysts tend to be very siloed in nature. And so they only have a very small slice of what's really going on, where I tend to look a little broader. Now, I can't, I'm certainly not going to go 
you know, maybe as deep as somebody who's strictly focused on product. But again, in these merging areas, I'm not sure that matters as much. But, uh, you know, my mandate has always been to kind of think more broadly about the impact that these technologies have on businesses. And, um, you know, that mandates a different way of looking at them. You can't really look within the silos. You've almost got to look cross silos. And that's, that's something I think that I can bring to the table where it's much more difficult for uh, an analyst and certainly at the big firms to do. I see in you as more of a connect the dots kind of guy. Is that a fair assessment? That is a fair assessment. In fact, I've used that analogy before that a lot of times when you see an analyst even present at, at an event, you know, they, they give their stump speech, but it's really up to the audience to try and connect the dots from their problem to whatever that speech is. I feel the job of an analyst is to connect those dots for whoever the stakeholder is, right? If you're a reseller, I have to connect the dots on how you sell more. If you're a line of business owner, my job is to connect the dots and how that changes the way you conduct operations. If you're an IT person, I have to connect the dots and how that helps you save money or do your job more efficiently. And so there's different ways, you know, there's different audiences and we have to connect the dots differently. But I think that's a good, that's an appropriate way to look at it, Josh. Tell me something, Zeus. You know, you talked about writing in different publications and being this hybrid analyst. Now, it may pertain to you or to analyst communities in general. I imagine you're working with a lot of vendors such as ourselves who could be competing with other such vendors. You end up endorsing, you know, different positions. So how do you, you know, preserve integrity or how do you avoid bias in such scenarios? You know, I, I think that's important role for an analyst, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And um, I try and avoid using superlatives that try and position one vendor is better than the other vendor you know, all other vendors. I think every vendor has strengths and weaknesses. And my job is to figure out what those are. And then from a strategic standpoint, if I, you know, when I'm working with Ariak, I have to figure out how I can help them take those strengths and position it in a way that people might, uh, buyers in a certain segment would look to you first. You know, conversely, if I'm looking at Cisco or Juniper or companies like that, the, their strengths are going to be different as well. So in fact, that's one of the issues I have with product like the Magic Quadrant, where it, in some ways it's definitively saying companies that are in the top right are better than companies that are in the bottom left. Well, that's not really the case, right? Everything's got context. If you think, you know, back to backways, if you were to think of like 3Com versus Cisco, somebody might say Cisco's always better, but, you know, 3Com made a very good low-cost product for small businesses, right? And so again, in that case, when I work with companies, I try and figure out what makes them unique, where their strengths are coming from, and then I help them position it along those lines. And even with things I write, it's within that context. So I never really try and position one vendor as being you know, better than everybody in all categories, because that's not true. But I do think within certain segments, each vendor has a strength. And that's, that's part of the connecting the dots, right, is understanding the relative strengths and weaknesses of each. And that's why, like I said, some of those decision tools are a little flawed because there's no context. That's a nice way of looking at it because you have to compartmentalize and then you have to provide context. And it's a great way of positioning different vendors uh, if you do it right that way. Yeah, you have no idea that some of the quotes that people ask me to say. So <laughs> I do a lot of rewriting of those. <laughs> yeah. Again, you know, I imagine a lot of your time is spent not just with vendors, but with people that are looking to deploy solutions with CIOs, CEOs. I remember we used to host you in, in the analyst days, I forget what they were called back at Cisco. And then I see you giving shout outs to, you know, Chuck Robbins every time you go past building 10. 
What kind of advice do they all seek from you? Are you seeing any patterns in some of their questions or problems that they're trying to solve? You have a different vantage point for that. Yeah, it, it really depends on the company, Shashi. I think if you're the market leader, like a Cisco, what you're worried about is what are the disruptive technologies that could unseat you, right? Like you think of something like software-defined networking and the disruption that created within Cisco before they finally got their act together there, right? If you're at Chuck Robbins, you need to be thinking about who are the small up-and-coming companies that have pretty unique solutions that solve a problem that Cisco isn't solving. And then if you're a company that's relatively small, a startup or whatever, what you're looking at is chinks in the armor of those big companies, how to position yourself in a way to be able to take advantage of that market transition before the incumbent decides to to come around and rule something out. And so it really depends on on the type of company. It's uh, like I said, if you're working from a position of strength, I help those business leaders, business unit leaders look over their shoulders and understand who's on the horizon that could disrupt you. And then for those smaller disruptive companies, I help them understand within those larger companies where they should be focused and where they shouldn't be focused. Because there's you know certain things certain companies do really well that I don't care how good a product you have, it's unlikely you'd be able to disrupt them. But there are, are always ways to disrupt. And that's why working in technology is so exciting because we always have companies that come out of nowhere and become big companies, even though uh, maybe people didn't expect it because it was a larger incumbent there. It's very common in this industry. It's happening faster and faster now. And to keep up with that speed isn't necessarily always easy, right? You, you mentioned the pace of technology, which is always changing. And you need to be um, always coming af- across as an expert. So what do you do to keep up? And um, what is your source of learning there? Yeah, I, I built a time machine and I go ahead and then I, I come back in time. But uh, when that's not working, honestly, Shashi, it's, it's talking to as many customers as I can. If I talk to enough uh, CIOs and network managers and security pros, and they understand one of the questions I always ask is, what problem do you have that nobody's solving? That gives me a pretty good idea of where the disruption might be. SD-WAN's perfect example of that. People were, and network engineers wanted to move away from that legacy hub and spoke for years and years. We just never really had a solution to do it. And so that was one that was pretty easy to see that would have a lot of success because the market had been begging for that for years. But, you know, again, this, there's no silver bullet here. You just talk to as many buyers as you can. I think the other thing that I try and do, and uh, Charlie Giancarlo, if you remember him, the former CTO at Cisco, he's now CEO of Pure. He told me when I was really early on in my analyst career to try and figure out who the 10 smartest people are in the segment you cover and stick close to them. <laughs> and I've, I've really tried to mine that. So there are certain go-to people that I have that when I'm thinking of something, I'll bounce an idea off them. And for anybody who's listening to this that's an analyst or thinking about being an analyst, you know, I certainly encourage that. Just go find the, you know, the head of technology, the certain vendor that's market leading, maybe a certain CIO that always seems to be on the cutting edge, build a relationship with them and, you know, make a two-way relationship and stick with them because that's how you're going to learn a lot because nobody knows everything, but we can learn an awful lot by talking to the community around us. And that's what I try and do. You know, it's uh, machine learning in human form in some ways. (laughs) Yeah, it is. (laughs) Yeah, there is an inside joke on this side of the fence that analysts appear so smart because they, you know, get the inputs from people that are coming to them for advice. and have 10 people coming to you for advice and you're able to relay nine of those conversations to others yeah. as if it's coming from you. <laughs> I have said sometimes, in fact, uh, when I used to deal with some of the big consulting firms, I used to joke with them that uh, people will pay a lot of money to have them check your watch and tell them the time. So 
Now, there is some truth to that, Shashi. It's just I happen to be in a good position where I sit at the junction point of investors, customers, resellers, vendors, you know, VCs, things like that. And so I do get a lot of input. You know, as long as you're able to synthesize that information, keep your personal bias out of it and connect those dots, it isn't a, I don't like to say it's an easy job, but it's one that you can almost make methodological. And that's where your machine learning analogy comes true. So how do you peg your reputation on certain trends? Because you may have conflicting, you know, people coming to you with different trends. At some point, you need to sort of say, hey, here is something definitive that I believe in, right? Yeah, it, I mean, you can be wrong. I haven't been right on every trend I've ever seen. I think the important thing is to be able to have conviction and back it up. And I'll give you a, a good example. There was a, a person who's a pretty good friend of mine now that's a cell site analyst. The very first time I met him, I really thought he was kind of a jerk because he argued every point I made. It's like we had an hour-long discussion where we just argued about stuff. And the next time I talked to him, he was a lot nicer. And I said, what was up with you last time? And he said, oh, he said, I, the very first time I meet somebody, I just push back on everything they say because I want to see if they actually believe what they say. So it doesn't matter if we agree on something. What he was trying to do is understand whether I had the conviction of what I was saying and I had the data points and the thought process to back it up. If it is, that was fine. I might be wrong down the road, but at least he understood the logic and the place I was coming from. And that gave him the confidence that when talking to me, I just wasn't saying to him what I think he wants to hear. You know, I'm not always right, but generally the things that I write and the analysis that I give, the presentations I give are, are backed up with a lot of both quantitative and qualitative data, you know, so I can come up with my thesis or conclusion. And Sometimes things change in the market, right? And and you wind up being wrong, but that's part of being able to adjust your thought process as well. Yeah, I do that a lot when I'm interviewing a candidate for hiring. I push them a lot, see how well they hold their ground, what's the power of their conviction. It's a very powerful thing. If you see somebody buckling down the first instance, you push them. That means they really didn't believe in what they were putting forth. So I think that's a very good formula. What are your thoughts about, you know, SASE, this terminology that Gartner brought about, and everybody's now aligning to that as a category? So any ZK research thoughts there? I'm not a big fan of the term because it's pretty nebulous, and I think it's hard for people to understand what it means. If you saw Elon Musk on uh, Saturday Night Live, where they kept asking him, and, uh, but what is Dogecoin? It's a little bit like that, right? What is SASE exactly? But I think the concept of bringing together network and security is something that I think I've been I've talked about that trend for years. It just, we operated things in silos and we really didn't have technology to bring them together because we, we might have tried to do it operationally, but we were still dealing with security from security vendors and network from network vendors. And there wasn't a lot of overlap between the two. With SASE, it actually does finally converge those technologies. And so from a single vendor, you get networking and security. And I also think, Shashi, that in some ways that concept was a, um, a bit of a, prior to the, the rise of cloud-based security, was a bit of a solution looking for a problem. If you remember back in the, when you were at Cisco in the early 2000s, we had these vendors like Cosign and Shasta and companies like that that actually allowed you to deliver cloud-based security. But that was, again, kind of a solution looking for a problem in that the buying, the way people bought it, it wasn't really aligned with that. We had people primarily in branch offices. We had hub-and-spoke networks. So the ability to buy a network-based firewall didn't really make a lot of sense back then economically. Today, everything's changed. We have the majority of our people in branch offices. We have people working from home. And the big thing is we're accessing data now from the cloud. And so as soon as we do that, we change the traffic patterns. 
And that changes the way we deploy security and networking. In fact, it's been my thesis for years and years and years and years that network changes follow compute changes, right? And so when we went uh, from mainframes to LANs, that's when we invented things like Lantastic and stuff like that. Then we went to branch offices and we had to create the wide area networks. Now that we're going to cloud, we need a different type of network, which is an SD-WAN, but then we need a different type of security to be able to protect that. And that's what SASE is. And so I think the concept of SASE has been out there for a while. I think we had to get over that inflection point when the majority of workloads were cloud-based in order for it to make sense. And so to me, SASE is the right network and security model for a world that's primarily cloud-first. And to me, that last statement being cloud-first is the big change that's happened in the industry that's driven the need for SASE. So even if we had had SASE 10 years ago, I don't think it would have taken off because our networks were primarily hub and spoke because all our data was centralized. Yet the timing for a lot of these needs to be just right. You brought memories with Shasta, which is where I also was there. And it was something way ahead of what the rest of the market had. It was ahead of its time. At the same time, I think a lot of what we're doing now were capabilities that the Shasta had back then. And uh, speaking of cloud first as well, you know, we kind of brought that on the network side here with Arieka and now with the whole SASE trend, the acquisition that we made with Secure Cloud. The other capabilities that we have, we're kind of going down the path of cloud first there as well. Yeah, all these big shifts, Shashi, you think of them as almost as mini perfect storms. You know, if you ask me, like, what created the internet or the, the rise of kind of the personal computing era, it wasn't any one thing. We had the Windows operating system. We had Intel, you know, help make cheaper PCs. We had home broadband. We had America Online, right? The concept of the home community, things like that. All those things kind of came together and created this big driving force that kicked off that era. Just like now, nobody's going to buy SASE just to buy SASE. It's the fact that we're shifting to cloud apps. We've got people working from home, more mobile devices. All those things have kind of come together at once. And SASE is the right, you know, like I said, network and security model for this era. And so I do think the Shasta model, that was a great concept, but you're right, it was way ahead of its time. We just really weren't ready for it. It had a $300 million plus revenue. So I would like to think it would have done even better. But hey, uh, you talked about the remote workers and big forcing functions. And right now, probably the biggest forcing function in our lifetime outside of the internet is perhaps the pandemic, right? It's a global forcing function. And what do you see as this architecture that's going to be this post-pandemic architecture, if you will? Is it going to be sassy? Is it going to be something else? And could you also talk about, you know, the impact on the workforce? You've been a remote worker for quite some time. So how do you see companies adjusting? Can you share some thoughts there? I do think it'll be SASE because what it does, well, I think it'll be kind of a hybrid version of SASE. I think SASE makes sense when you've got lots and lots of distributed people. If you've got, you know, a single office with 10,000 people in it, I'm not so sure pushing all your security to the cloud makes some sense. I, I do think cloud managed makes sense but you would still want your infrastructure on-premise. So I think you will still see, you know, like everything in, in life, Shasha, we still have on-premises applications. We still have TDM phones, right? So not everything goes to one thing overnight. And I think SASE will be the dominant architecture, although we still will have some traces of legacy to support the different types of workloads and workers that are out there. Now, what SASE brings, though, is for the first time ever, we have the ability to give people that are work from home, people in small offices, things like that, corporate grade security, right? So if you think of, you know, back in the day when you were deploying your 
Cisco ISR, right? If you had a three-person office, that was an awfully expensive way to be able to put routing in there, and then you could load that up with all the Cisco security tools. And that that was an overly expensive way to deploy security and networking. So the decision for the organization was, do I go with something lower cost, but would have be less secure? Or do I go with the more expensive product and make sure that I am secure and I have good connectivity? With SASE, now I can have both because it's, it is in the cloud and I can buy it almost on a, a per, on a utilization-based model. Now I can, just like I can with other cloud resources, cloud applications, storage, compute, things like that. I don't have to buy everything up front. I can move to that kind of paper that has a service model. And I think that's what SASE brings. And so I think it's the rise of the micro branch, if you will, if you want to think of a home worker as that, I think you will see more and more SASE. So I, I think an easy way to think of it, if you're in line of business manager or an IT leader, is the world's becoming more dynamic and more distributed. And we need to have a security model that enables that. Right. And that's what SASE does is it helps us adapt to a world where everybody can be in the office, nobody can be in the office, and every possible combination in between. And we still have to deal with mainframes. You know, there are just a lot of them still around. I know a person that's got a, a business that doing the maintenance on mainframes and uh, he's never made more money because that market's gotten smaller. He's consolidated a lot of the vendors in that space and his margins have gone way up because it is such a specialty now. Yeah, it's such a broad spectrum of deployments in the enterprise and I think these are waves that come about and sometimes I feel they add more complexity because you're never getting rid of what you had before. It's always stacking something on top of that. But I guess that's job security for a lot of people. Well, that's certainly true is uh, the complexity bar in IT has gone way up. And I think one of the things SASE does is it helps you simplify, right? Where instead of having to take, you know, put Palo Alto firewalls and Fortinet IPS systems and things like that in every branch location, I can go to a centralized model I can manage it through a cloud portal. And now I can, if I want to be able to change a policy, I can do it through something like the ARIOCA portal and push it out everywhere versus having to do it on a, you know, on a box-by-box basis. And so I think one of the things that the big values that SASE brings is, is it helps simplify by masking a lot of the complexity that's there through that cloud interface. That was a smooth plug for ARIOCA, yes. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> that was well inserted. So thank you. You know, looking ahead, you know, you, you talked about being in this time machine, so you're a part-time futurist of sorts. What are the most radical changes that you see happening in the next decade? I do think the shift to everything as a service, and I'm curious to see how that plays out, because if you saw from Dell Tech World, they rolled out Apex, right? You can buy everything Dell as a, as a managed service. Cisco just announced their whole portfolio as a service as well. And I think the vendors are still trying to kind of think through how exactly that works, because in some cases, I still have to give you physical infrastructure. So there's a cost to me to run that, and not everything can be run as shared infrastructure. But I do think more and more customers want to buy everything as a service. And so I think this is a trend that's going to continue. I don't think the world's got it right yet, the vendor community does, but I I certainly think we're well on the way there. And that has a pretty profound impact on IT buying, because historically, if you were to have to buy whatever infrastructure you wanted, you either had to buy for today and then you run at a capacity in six months or you bought for two years from now, which you'd have to overpay and hope you grow into the capacity, right? So now I can buy what I need, but then grow into it as I want to. I think another really interesting enabling technology is going to be 5G. You know, when I first started covering 5G, I thought, well, that's just a faster version of 4G. And, uh, you know, it wouldn't really be all that game change. But I do think it is because for the first time ever, 
we're going to have wireless speeds that are faster than wired speeds from an access perspective. And that's kind of cool, right? So now I don't have to make that decision of do I go wired or wireless? And I've talked to a lot of companies that are looking even bringing 5G in building and connecting critical systems and things. So it's much more, it's more expensive than Wi-Fi, but it's better predictability. So I think you'll wind up in the mix of, of Wi-Fi and 5G. And then from a WAN perspective, I talked about those perfect storms. I think 5G and edge computing go hand in hand. And so now I can deliver more edges and more places using 5G. So I'm really, really excited about the possibilities of 5G because it allows us to connect more things in more places, which allows us to do more things in more places. And probably the, the third, you know, really exciting technology is just artificial intelligence being used into everything. We generate so much data today from networks and security tools and applications and things like that, that we simply can't make sense of what all that data means, but machines can. And so I think our reliance, it's a little bit scary, right? We're going to rely on machines to help us do our jobs more and more. But I wouldn't look at it as a big threat. You know, there's certainly no Terminator T-series that's coming to kill us all. (laughs) I look at it more as uh, an assistive technology. So you think even a lot of people don't like the concept of self-driving cars. Well, what we have today are driver-assisted technologies that are artificially intelligence-driven, things like parallel park assist, lane change alert, you know, even autopilot, things like that. They're tools to help the driver be safer. You know, I do a lot of cycling, and I've got actually a computer that sits on the back of my bike now and can sense when cars are coming from like 200 yards away. And so that's a great AI-based tool because it helps me be safer. And I think that's the first wave of AI. It's going to let us do the things that we do faster, safer, more efficiently without taking over what we do. And so I, I think that does create a lot of new jobs and things like that. And so I'm pretty excited about those things. Yeah, it's the rise of the machines and we don't have a choice there. <laughs> no, we don't have a choice because as we talked about, the world's getting more complicated. And so we either drown in complexity or we take advantage of Or we become slaves to it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So Zeus, uh, we probably need to wrap now. I enjoyed talking to you. But before we wrap, you know, a lot of people come to you for advice. Who does ZS go to for advice? You know, any particular leaders that you admire as well in that same breath? There's a lot of them, especially in this industry. I keep a pretty broad community of people that I look to for advice. You know, I still keep a pretty good relationship with John Chambers, even though he's moved on to a, be a venture capitalist. Uh, you know, there's a lot of industry colleagues that I talk to, you know, network analysts like Rohit Mara, folks like that, that I have a lot of respect for, that when I see them, Brad Casemore is another one. It's always good to bounce ideas off them. Uh, my peers in the analyst community, a lot of them I have respect for. They've become part of my community. A lot of the business leaders, I said John Chambers, Chuck Robbins, even I didn't really have an appreciation for the evolution storage was going through until I talked to Charlie Giancarlo when he took that job at Pure. And so it really depends on what I'm looking at, the technology uh, that I'm looking at as to who I might go for some advice. I think uh, one of the strengths that analysts have is they can keep a pretty big community of people. And so it would be hard for me to pick just a couple of people out of that that I always go to. It really depends on what it is I'm doing research in. Yeah, it's about relationships and a different kind of networking. Yeah. Well, Aziz, thanks as always. It's been a pleasure talking to you. You bring wonderful insights and uh, I'm really thrilled that we could get you on the podcast today. Yeah, anytime, trust me. We've been friends for a long time, so happy to do this with you. We'll have you again sometime soon. All right, take care and uh, thanks again. Thanks, Russell.